Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the Board of Directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and I'm here with my co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, Lester. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Doing great. Glad to be back for another episode here. Same here, and I think before we begin, we ought to note that today is election day, and get out and vote if you haven't already. I've already voted by mail. You voted I yet? have not, so I'm going to get to stand in line today, I'm thinking. so. Uh, well, I've already checked on Twitter, and hashtag Fulton County is trending because of the long, long lines in Fulton County. Well, hopefully, uh, as a country lawyer, I've got a few a little shorter line up here in Cartersville, Georgia. We'll see. Let us know. Today, folks, we're going to be talking about appellate law practice and what that is and what that means. And to help us understand it, we're thrilled to have Georgia lawyer Mike Terry with us on the show today. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Robin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? So far, so good. We'll see how this goes. Let me tell the listeners a little bit about you, Mike. Mike Terry represents plaintiffs and defendants in complex commercial and appellate matters, as well as class action. Over the past 15 years, his practice has focused heavily on appellate litigation, particularly in the areas of class action, actions, and punitive damages. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers, an organization founded to advance the highest standards and practices of appellate advocacy and to recognize outstanding appellate lawyers. Mike argued the landmark Georgia case, Atlanta Oculoplasty Surgery PC v. Nesselhut, in 2010 and achieved, achieved a 7-0 victory before the Georgia Supreme Court in a challenge to the constitutionality of the state's caps on pain and suffering damages in medical malpractice cases. In 2016, Mike argued and achieved a 7-0 reversal of the denial of class certification for a class of consumers alleging they had been charged usurious fees by their bank. In 2015, Mike was selected by the Council of State Court Judges of Georgia to represent that body in a Georgia Supreme Court challenge to actions taken by the Georgia Judicial Qualifications Commission. A strong supporter of the Atlanta legal community, he has served as president of the Atlanta Bar Association, where he set a focus on judicial funding and services for lawyers in transition. He is also a member of the Georgia State Bar Board of Governors, and he is a frequent lecturer and author on business litigation topics, including class actions, punitive damages, and appellate issues. He is often asked to moderate debates and panels, panel discussions involving judges. And you can find out more about Mike at his law firm's website, bmelaw.com. That stands for Bondurant, Nixon, Elmore, bmelaw.com. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to have you. Happy to be here on election day. Have you voted yet, by the way? 
I have. I voted by mail, and I also went to the My Voter page and made sure that my ballot was received. We and did everybody who voted by mail should do that. We did that last night. If it wasn't. I, I just want to say that as much as I favor uh, mail-in voting and being able to mail-in vote uh, as a uh, lifelong procrastinator, I am glad to still have the opportunity to go vote on the last day. True, I agree. Uh, let's hope it goes smoothly today. Um, we're in, Mike, a, the, in a pandemic right now, coronavirus um, pandemic, where our courts have been closed now for a while. They may be closed a little bit longer, we're not sure. Um, have you ever experienced anything like this and how are, how is your practice getting along? How are you going forward with your practice in this? Well, you know, my practice has been extraordinarily busy. Um, I've now had 12 uh, remote arguments, mostly by Zoom, 11 by Zoom. Uh, and it's, the courts have adapted extraordinarily well. Uh, the practice is, is going well and the one thing I will say is particularly our Supreme Court has done a great job of managing the pandemic from a systemic court standpoint uh, and handling their own business extremely well. Uh, the Zoom arguments there, the professionalism of the staff and the way they bring you in in advance and have you practice, et cetera, uh, to make sure that the flow of information is not interrupted by technical issues is, has been really great. As far as seeing anything like this, the closest thing I would say would have been right after 9-11, uh, where for a very short period of time compared to this, things were shut down. And even after that, there was a lot of hesitancy in putting crowds of people together as we tried to figure out what additional danger of, of further attacks there was. So uh, one of the other things that's going on, Mike, right now are the massive protests throughout the United States, even uh, abroad in places like London and Paris and Stockholm, uh, arising from uh, the death of George Floyd, uh, allegedly at the hands of a police officer, although we can all see the video. Uh, as a lawyer, I, I still believe uh, uh, allegedly is appropriate uh, for those accused of a crime. But uh, one of the issues that, that I've heard a lot of talk about is the issue of qualified immunity. And for, that, for our listeners who don't really know what qualified immunity is, uh, it gives uh, police officers, law enforcement officers, and, and some other public officials uh, an actual immunity from being sued or being called to account for uh, in front of a, juror, a jury or peers. Uh, it is a judicial doctrine uh, that, was, that came out of the appellate courts, not by any statute uh, or uh, other enactment by the legislatures. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts uh, about that and where that might be going and, and how it might have uh, bearing on uh, uh, folks who are the victims of police mis misconduct uh, actually being able to get a little justice in the civil court. Sure. Actually, I, I have pretty strong uh, opinions about it and, and uh, uh, guesses as to where it's going. Uh, one of the, the concept of, of uh, qualified immunity is, what, about 38 or 40 years old, and as you said, a judicially created doctrine, and the idea is that police officers, because they're acting in emergency situations, but other government entities as well, even in non-emergency situations, 
should only be held to account for violation of constitutional laws if it is clearly established that what they are doing violates the law. Uh, you know, that doesn't sound like a, a, a horrible idea until you see it in application. Uh, and, and particularly the way it developed over the years as simply a protection device for the government and for the police. Uh, so, for example, to be clearly established, uh, you know, you had to have a case, a published case on all fours saying it's a violation of constitutional rights to do X. Now, th this led to two serious problems. The first serious problem is people wanted it to be too precise. And in one of the famous cases, there was an older case saying, you know, if you tie somebody to a hitching post and whip them, uh, that's a violation of their constitutional rights. And then later, you know, they tie somebody to a telephone pole and whip them. They said, well, there's no case saying you can't tie them to a telephone pole. Now, the idea that you're not on notice, even in the first instance that you can't tie up a suspect and whip them, it doesn't matter what you tie them to. You shouldn't need one case to tell you you can't do that. And you certainly shouldn't need one with the same you know, kind of pole. But the other more insidious part of this is that the courts then, and I'm not ascribing bad motive when I use insidious, but that was the result. The courts would look at this issue before they looked at whether it was a constitutional violation. In other words, is there an earlier case saying this is unconstitutional? It's directly on all fours. And if not, we're not going to decide whether the conduct was unconstitutional because there's immunity. Well, the problem with that is it never advances. If you never have a decision saying, you know what, you know, if you if you hold a prisoner in the back of your cop car in 100 degree weather without water or, or air conditioning for five hours, that's a violation. Well, if that comes up and it's never come up before and you say, well, there's immunity, so we're not going to decide if that's a violation. And then the next time it happens, there's still no case saying it's a violation. So well, the law never advances. One of, one of the problems that 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 I see with the qualified immunity, you know, we've now uh, you know, for, for years, police officers who engaged in misconduct never got indicted. But even those that get indicted, the idea that uh, uh, a jury is going to convict them when the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt and they're uh, all of these factors that sort of go into qualified immunity are presented there. You know, it, it makes for a lot of disappointment, I think, for the victim's family sometime when there's an acquittal uh, there. But uh, do you think it's fair to say that Right now, with qualified immunity, there's literally no other avenue for justice on behalf of the uh, of the the family of a victim of police misconduct. I would say that is uh, not a hundred percent accurate, but very close to it. I mean, sure, there are going to be times that juries are going to convict, and and increasingly we have video evidence which makes it hard. But we've seen in the last few years acquittals with video evidence that any layperson would say uh, was dispositive, but. I think we may be, may be on the verge of either trimming back substantially or eliminating the qualified immunity defense. Uh, you know, we, we've had both Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor saying, uh, th this doesn't seem right. Now, when you have those extremes, those polar extremes, it reminds me of when we had a vote on the Patriot Act many years ago, right after 9-11, and there were two Congress people who opposed it and said it was unconstitutional, Bob Barr uh, and Cynthia McKinney. And when those two combined to say this is unconstitutional, maybe people ought to listen. And I, I sort of feel the same way when, when, when Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor are both saying, well, what, 
what really is the basis for this doctrine other than us, uh, you know, 30 something years ago? Well, the, the, the Congress, the Congress could get rid of it uh, if they wanted to. There's, I a mean, bill, it's, there's a bill pending. There is a bill pending in Congress. But, which I, which uh, I think was introduced by uh, uh, by a former Republican congressman uh, from Michigan, uh, which uh, is trying to attract. Now I think some, now a libertarian, I guess. Yeah, I think he's. I think he just. Uh, it says he's an independent, but So what? One more question on this, Mike, and then I, I'm I'm not going to hog the mic from Robin, but uh, but respects, uh, yeah. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, if you if you're talking about a lot of people say, uh, well, you know, the police officer ought not have to pay out of his pocket. But every other employer, uh, if their employee takes a bad action, you know, if the Coca-Cola truck driver runs over you, Coca-Cola is responsible right. for that. Uh, and so uh, what do you think about the idea that the cities or counties or states or whoever is the employer in charge with training these folks, that they're the ones that really ought to bear the economic risk uh, of that misconduct. And uh, that, that that, as in some uh, uh, other areas where lawsuits are filed and you get increased safety, like for automobiles, uh, for example, it becomes safer over the years because of suits about seat belts and airbags and things like that, that, that ultimately that exerts pressure uh, on, the, uh, on the law enforcement community and on the cities to have a better trained, more de-escalating law enforcement community to uh, uh, avoid these types of, of, of misconduct cases. Well, you know, a lot of it, it actually depends on, on what the governmental entity is. Uh, you know, for example, a city can be sued under Section 1983 uh, if the uh, misconduct of the officer is the result of a policy or practice uh, of the city uh, that causes, you know, in other words, we're not going to train or we're going to adopt a policy that you beat the crap out of suspects. Uh, you know, uh, or, or, you know, if, if your mayor instead of your president says, I want you to get rough with them when you arrest them, don't be too gentle. Um, you know, so if, if the city... Uh, has a, a policy or practice that leads to the constitutional violation, they can be held liable for it. The problem is the states, you know, we, we've got uh, uh, sovereign immunity for our states that has uh, a much uh, stronger reach. Well, I think we all agree there's work to be done. Something needs to change. Uh, it's it's uh, in a, a bad situation right now. Um, and these family members need justice. They're not getting it. They're not going to get it until something changes. And I would urge, you know, the, the, the lawyers listening to this to, to get involved, not only as, you know, protesters or, or uh, what are we now, allies or accomplices, but, but actually get involved as lawyers. And, and, and groups like the National Lawyer Guild are organizing legal observers for the protest. You provide... Uh, services such as observing arrests, making sure that people know what jail that the person being arrested is going to. Frankly, there's a, there's a great effect from having the police know their arrests are being observed by a lawyer. Uh, and so that's, I mean, that's something that, that I've done. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a legal service where we can use our particular talents and expertise uh, to protect the constitutional rights of those exercising their constitutional rights. 
That's a great call to action, Mike. I uh, appreciate that. And listeners, please, please uh, do what Mike is asking you to do. It's a great idea. Let's uh, move into a little bit about your career, Mike. Um, first of all, why, why did you go into the practice of law? Well, you know, a, a couple of reasons. I actually intended to go to business school and, and did one one quarter. It was quarters, not semesters back then, and really found it uh, uh, boring. And I love to argue, uh, and that's what happened around my dinner table. We had a very politically active family, very engaged, and um, uh, eventually it came to me to seem like uh, the better fit for me. And so I did have a few years between college and law school, but I decided that's where I wanted to be. And when you first got out of law school, tell us a little bit about your career and how it's changed through the years. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. I was a big moot court person in law school. And, and so I really came out wanting to do uh, appeals. There really wasn't such a thing as an appellate practice at that point. But I, I was given the opportunity to argue a couple of appeals even in my first year uh, at our firm. But my practice was largely a commercial hourly trial practice for a number of years. Um, I worked with, you know, great lawyers at the firm, Emmett Bondrant, Mickey Mixon, et cetera, and uh, got to try cases with them and, and learn a work ethic uh, and, and a way of doing things that I think has, has served me very well. Um, over the course of years, uh, I began doing, again, a few years later, more and more appeals. And I started handling appeals in some fairly large cases where I'd been on the trial. Um, and really, the appellate practice as a separate practice came out of, out of that, and it was the Six Flags Time Warner case and the work that I did on those appeals. Um, a large plaintiff's verdict with many of the same issues came up to the 11th Circuit shortly after that case was over. And Mike Bowers uh, was the plaintiff's lawyer uh, with a $20 million-ish verdict, and he hired me to handle the appeal because uh, I had handled many of the same issues in the Six Flags case. And we had a, a, a great victory in that case for Mike. And he gave me a lot of credit in the press uh, for, for sort of steering that victory. And he was extraordinarily gracious and kind to me. And I started receiving more calls for other appeals um, after that. And over, over a course of years, I've been able to change it to where my practice is about 75 to 80% appellate. I still try cases. I've tried three cases in the last five years. Um, and I, I have a lot of class actions, well, a lot. For class actions, I've got about four uh, plaintiff's class actions where I'm, I'm lead counsel uh, at the trial court level. But, but about 75% of my work is now, is now appeals of other people's cases. So, Mike, you know, uh, <clears throat> different from what I mainly do or, what, or from what Robin uh, mainly does, because we're mainly in the trial courts uh, most of the time, by the time you get a case, a trial lawyer like, like me has already screwed it up somehow or, or at least cast the die, you know, in one direction or the other by whatever, uh, wh whatever we've done below. And uh, uh, I, I was trying to think, I don't think I've ever, I think I've argued maybe one or two appeals that I was not involved in the trial court level. But, you know, I, I get asked to try cases, not to argue uh, on, on appeal very often. 
And uh, how do you go about looking at a case, deciding if there's an appellate issue? Because uh, you, you really do have a lot more things that are decided at the stage that you walk in than, than the rest of us do. Well, and, and that is changing. I mean, over the last six years or so, the trial lawyers have started bringing us in earlier. And, and some of them are bringing us in before they file the complaint, bringing in the appellate lawyers. And I like to participate in the trial. I, I don't like to just sit there. You know what? Believe it or not, sitting through a trial that somebody else is doing is kind of boring. Uh, I mean, no. even as a lawyer. I know. Uh, and so, for example, I don't think know, I've I, ever done that. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of times I will, I will be at the trial, you know, and I, I tried uh, two, three week trials a week apart uh, about three years ago. And I handled several witnesses in each of the trials because, you know, just give me something to do and, and take some burden off the, uh, off the other lawyers. But being in early allows you to help shape the record, the theories, the evidence, make sure the objections are preserved. Uh, etc. Um, you know, avoiding uh, overreach, which is frequently uh, that, uh, a battle. Uh, but um, but then a lot of times you just get the case when somebody uh, either lost what they thought was a big case or they won big and they want to not lose it on appeal. And so they come to you with the case. Now, Sometimes it's crystallized. Uh, they, they lost summary judgment. So the issues on appeal is that summary judgment order. Although when I was first starting out as an appellate lawyer, I made a, 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 a serious error of judgment in taking on several cases where a plaintiff had lost summary judgment. And I looked at it and I looked at the record and I looked at the briefs and the evidence and I said, that was just a mistake. There, there's just no way. And I said, I'll take it and I'll take it on a contingency basis. If, you know, I'll get whatever you get, a percentage of what you get uh, if you ultimately win the case. And in those three cases, I went forward and got the summary judgments reversed. And what I hadn't done and many, many years ago was looked at, well, are we going to win the trial? And sometimes judges grant summary judgment when perhaps they shouldn't when they're really just putting a weak case out of its misery. And you get the summary judgment reversed and then you go lose a trial on the exact same issues uh, that the judge, you know, the judge saw a scintilla of evidence and maybe shouldn't have granted summary judgment, but he knew where it was going. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I learned a couple of lessons from winning appeals and not getting paid because the case was then subsequently lost at trial. Uh, but, but, Frequently, the, the, issue, the, the trial lawyer can screw it up for you on both ends is what you're really telling us. Isn't it? <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. In that circumstance. Now, you know, a lot of times I get hired. Mostly these days I get hired when there's a big verdict. You know, somebody gets a 20, 30, 50, 70 million dollar, 200 million dollar verdict. Um, and, they, and they hire me to try and hang on to it. Uh, hopefully they hire me a little earlier. But usually it's I, I will tell you, I've probably gotten eight or nine calls just in the last year within an hour of a jury coming back. Um, and, and I get that call and then I'm in from that day, you know, working to craft the arguments for JNOV, new trial, et cetera. Matter of fact, I, I got one in a very large um, nine figure case. I got a call a couple of uh, months ago, late last year and where it was, Hey, listen, the jury just came back and the other side's saying this, what do I say? You know, <laughs> and literally it's I'm on the cell phone uh, as the verdict has just been read and they're trying to decide whether to release the jury 
uh, and send them on their way. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm providing advice at that point and, you know, trying to run conflicts checks on my cell phone at the same time. Um, but yeah, Lester, you're right. It, it can get screwed up. But the simple fact is most people don't get a really big verdict without being a good lawyer. And, you know, mistakes happen in the heat of the moment, in the heat of battle. But, but most people make a good record. And I think people are more careful than they used to be. But I also am a big fan of the trend of getting the appellate lawyer involved earlier and even before the start of trial, if possible. Well, you know, there, there, there's an old joke about how you get a million-dollar verdict and it's you screw up a $3 million case. Uh, and, uh, but, but, you know, when you're, when you're a trial lawyer, you have to react, uh, you know, the best answer you can get in the next 15 seconds, not the best answer you can get, you know, after 15 weeks of study on the issue. And, uh, of course, I, I'm sure you get some, uh, you know, these issues repeat. They're not isolated to a case, so your experience really comes to, to bear as well. Let me ask you about this. I, I watched recently uh, in uh, watched the arguments in front of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom when they argued the Brexit. Uh, it was really the prorogation of Parliament case that they had there, and so they have you know four or five lawyers, and they get each get like two hours a piece, you know, to argue their case. And uh, and the George Supreme Court, George Court of Appeals, Eleventh Circuit. Even in the U.S. Supreme Court, you get 15, 20 minutes, uh, uh, maybe 30 minutes if you're lucky. Uh, how do you feel about oral argument and about how we do oral argument here in the United States versus how it's done in some other countries where you've got a lot longer uh, time period? And, and just for our listeners uh, who may watch uh, Law & Order on television where you have a five-minute closing argument, you know, in Georgia, for closing arguments in a, in a criminal case, you get an hour. And uh, if it's a capital case, regardless of whether the death penalty is sought, you can get two hours to argue well, your case. You, hours, you actually get two hours as of right in civil cases. If yeah. you ask, it's, it's all in how you ask. Um, no, not, because not, a good, got, not a good idea to take two hours with the jury, in my opinion. Well, you know, I, I, I mostly agree with you, Robin, but, you know, a lot of the cases that we try are like seven to 12 week antitrust cases and, you know, when you're trying a case where the where the trial went multiple months, you're going to need that two hours. And sometimes you're going to want more. Uh, but Lester, you know, the United States Supreme Court used to have day long arguments, uh, you know, and it basically you, you, you argue until the justices get too tired to go on. And the time limits are both good and bad. Um, it, it really makes you organize and crystallize your issues to that, which is really important. Um, I frankly think the time limits give uh, a, an advantage to people who do it a lot because you learn how to structure things uh, around the time limits. And it also varies greatly court to court. For example, in the 11th Circuit, I generally come in with the understanding that I'm not going to be given more than 45 seconds to two minutes to talk before the rest of the time is taken up with questions. And that's largely true, not as true, in the Georgia Supreme Court. They let you talk a little more uh, and, and let you make your arguments rather than just answering questions. But I, we refer internally when we prepare our lawyers to the 11th Circuit as a question court. And the preparation is preparing for the questions. And it's not a monologue at all. Uh, and so, but, but managing your time is difficult or close to impossible uh, when someone else is doing the questioning and driving the agenda. 
And so you just have to learn to transition. You have to work on transitions. You have to be able to take an answer to one question and turn it into the affirmative point that you wanted to make. And we actually practice those techniques in advance of an argument. Or Mike, for a 20 minute Georgia Supreme Court argument, uh, how many hours would you say you prepare for a 20 minute argument? So that's enormously variable. Uh, I would say anywhere from 30 hours to two or 300 hours. Um, so Nestle Hut, I think we did more than a dozen moot courts. And each moot court was 45 minutes to three hours long. Uh, and that was spread over a month or two. Um, and to be honest, we had had a predecessor case that got within a week of argument. Same issue. So we'd spent a good bit of time prepping um, and so there, and, and I would say prep time has gotten shorter, uh, over the last five or six years because, um, I've had a lot of repetitive issues. So I've argued apportionment, for example, in the appellate courts five times this year. And, and yeah, so you don't need to prep the same case law as much when you're arguing the same issues repetitively. So yeah, yeah, you get, uh, you know, with the Nesselite case you're talking about, you, you, you only got one at seven zero because we didn't, you'd have nine justices at that point. Now we've got nine justices, uh, on the George Supreme court. Uh, three judge panels are pretty typical in some of the other, uh, appellate courts, but you know, you get a wide variety of judges up there. You got people like Clarence Thomas, uh, who, until the advent of uh, uh, some of the teleconference arguments recently, never really asked a question. You know, it was a it was a news item if Clarence Thomas asked a question. You've got other uh, judges and justices who uh, seem to think they're the only one that gets to ask questions. So you get a wide variety uh, of, of different people in the audience that you're trying to persuade, and you probably know going in that uh, some are more persuadable than others and that th there are certain ones that you have to win in order to do that. So how do you parse all that out uh, in, in your strategy? So it's actually case by case, judge by judge, justice by justice. Um, and, and this is a lot of the prep that goes into this. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about one case as an example of that. But, you know, in the Georgia Court of Appeals, we're getting three judge panels. And you know who your three judges are, though it changes with recusals, retirements, et cetera. But from the date your case is docketed. In the 11th Circuit, it's three judge panels. You don't know who they are until two weeks before the argument. Uh, but the argument is particularly where you, you know, where you have a panel uh, where it's a variable mix. It's not the same seven or now nine justices on the Georgia Supreme Court. Um, one of the things I like to do, I mean, judges are people, you know, and they have all the foibles and strengths, uh, that, that ordinary people have. And for example, if I'm arguing an issue in a Georgia court of appeals, uh, and I've got a, a point on which there are multiple cases that I could cite for a particular purpose, look for one going your way, written by one of the judges on your panel remind him or her that they wrote this. These are your words and they're right. Uh, and, and because judges don't want to, uh, first they believe what they said. Second, they don't want to appear inconsistent. And third, they don't want to be inconsistent. And so if you can say, you've previously said this, this is what you said. I think that that carries some weight. Now, of course, in the Supreme Court, 
you've got nine of them up there and, and, and you know, you can't tailor it as tightly to any one, except sometimes you walk in and you know, you know, Justice X is my problem here today. Based on what she has written, she's going to be a problem on this case, or he's going to have, uh, you know, a burr under his saddle on this issue. And so you prepare justice by justice in that respect, even in the, in the Supreme Court. Um, and and you, you have to know, and, and you frequently do know, who is, are going to be the frequent questioners, who's, who's going to press you. Um, and, and our Georgia Supreme Court has, uh, over the last few years, gotten a lot more uh, aggressive in its questioning. And there are some great questioners. I mean, there really are. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, we don't have as much as the U.S. Supreme Court has of people using their questions to fence with or lobby with the other justices. Mostly our questions are, I need your position on this to decide the case, or I don't understand this argument, explain it to me better, or I'm not seeing this in the record, tell me what your basis is for saying that. And the questions in our court, in my mind, are better structured towards getting to the right answer rather than political fencing. Uh, and so I, I'm really happy with a lot of the, the questioning that we are getting these days. Well, it's, it's probably fair to say that uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court that a lot of the questions, uh, the purpose of the question is clearly for the justice to uh, uh, broadcast what their opinion is about a certain issue as opposed to uh, to, to really being a true question that you won't answer. That, that's my observation. Would you agree with that? I, I do. I do agree with that. And, and also to try and lobby or persuade the other justices. So. My personal experience, uh, especially in the Georgia Supreme Court, is uh, you cannot tell which way the case is going to come out based on the questions. Because just when I feel like they are really hammering the other side, I get up and argue and they hammer me, just their equal opportunity hammering questions. You can't tell which way it's going to go because they're, they're very Socratic and they dig deep at your weakness on each side. You know, they, they do. Um, but, but sometimes you, you know, you, you can tell, you know, I've had a judge go like, I, I'm just not buying that argument. You better come up with something else because I'm not buying that. Now that's one. But, you know, I, sometimes they're, they're, they're pretty open about where, what they're thinking and where they're going. And other times they're just questioning you because they want to test the uh, soundness of your legal reasoning and, 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 and poke and prod. And, and they're doing that to both sides because maybe they're really not sure where they're going to go yet. So, yeah. but that's I do remember an argument and I don't I don't remember the issue, but it was over the way of a, a, a a lawyer had treated another lawyer. And I remember Judge Herb Phipps, when he was on the Court of Appeals bench, uh, in oral argument, uh, say, is that the way we really treat other lawyers in Georgia? And to get that kind of question from a judge or a justice, you, you, you know you've done something wrong. I, that was like a low moment for that lawyer. I don't even remember what the issue was, but never we want to have that happen. Well, I had a case uh, in the Georgia Court of Appeals a couple of years ago where when the lawyer on the other side finished and went to sit down, one of our judges said, I need you to come back to the podium for a minute. Um, uh -oh. I was reading through the discovery responses 
and the objections. And um, we're going to have a chat about professionalism. <laughs> and, you know, and their time was up, but they, <laughs> but there was, and I was sort of stunned as, you know, sitting on the other side and, you know, I'm, I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to grin or whether I was really uncomfortable. And, and there was just a little bit like about a one minute, that's not how Georgia lawyers do things. And I don't want to see that in the next record that comes up in one of your cases. Um, yeah. So let me, let, let me ask you about, about something that our, our non-lawyer listeners may not know uh, what, what it is, but it's called stare decisis, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, the, the, the court opinions are precedent to be used in other cases. You've talked a little bit about how you use that. Uh, you know, somebody once said that there'll never be a Nobel Prize uh, in law because it's the only discipline that does not reward original thinking, that in order to, uh, to get something done, you have to have shown that it's been done before by somebody else in the ancient past. Uh, just as a principle, as a general matter, uh, is stare decisis a good thing, the idea that you've got to have a, have a case that shows uh, this issue has been resolved this way or close to this way before uh, before you can win win the case that's currently before the court. Well, you know, stare decisis. I mean, in Georgia, we we have statutory uh, uh, precedential rules. I mean, that you know the, the 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 opinions of the Georgia Supreme Court are binding on the Court of Appeals. The opinions of the Court of Appeals are binding on the lower courts. That that's you know that that's enforceable here. Um, now. Uh, but the, the general princ legal principle of stare decisis has great utility as long as it is taken as a general principle and not as a, an absolute rule. Um, so the great thing about stare decisis is it, in, it brings into the law an element of predictability. It allows people to govern their conduct uh, by looking at what the law allows and does not allow. And, and, and you know, you're not generally going to do something and then find out later that something you had been told forever was perfectly fine is now sanctionable, uh, a tort, whatever. Um, and so having predictability in the law and in society and in the actions of people governed by our laws is a great thing. But the law has to evolve. Um, you know, it's... Uh, uh, you know, draw the line from, you know, Dred Scott to Brown v. Board of Education and the law changes and it's not stare decisis that is making that changes. It's, it's, uh, it's hopefully an iterative change, but sometimes it has to be revolutionary rather than simply um, evolutionary. And, and I think a lot of times our courts step up to the plate when that's necessary and a lot of times they don't. So stare decisis has a great function it is useful. It cannot control, or we never advance as a society. And, and, and that would cue that would cue Oliver Oliver Wendell Holmes. The life of the law has been uh, logic has not been logic, but experience. I suppose. I think that is right, Mike. Let's talk a, a little bit about some of your um, more renowned cases. We we've mentioned the Nesselhut case. We call it Nesselhut because um, she was the plaintiff. I call it Nesselhut because I represent plaintiffs and she was the plaintiff. And, um, but, but the um, appellant, the, the person who, the, the entity that lost below was Atlanta Oculoplastic Surgery, uh, her doctors, and uh, they lost in the court below and then in the Supreme Court, 
they bring the appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. Um, case tried by our mutual good friend, Adam Malone, uh, received a $1.265 million verdict, and then you enter for the appeal. Tell our listeners a little bit about what that issue was that you, um, it was a very big deal, obviously, in our jurisprudence in Georgia. So can you fill our listeners in on that case? Sure. And so, you know, there, there was a, a previous case, uh, Lance Laurie's case, uh, that uh, had the same issue teed up. And it, and it was the issue of the constitutionality of the cap on uh, non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. And, and of course, the thinking was of the General Assembly and of the Chamber of Commerce that we're going to put caps on all kinds of damages. And they ran out in the Med-Mal one first because of a perceived crisis in uh, medical malpractice verdicts. So we challenged this. Um, and in the first case, we were very close to oral argument. And it was an extraordinarily sympathetic case, uh, you know, where we had a, a paraplegic client because of medical negligence. And, um, you know, the, the, the capped amount just seemed paltry and ludicrous. And, um, and then right when we were getting ready to go up with that very sympathetic case, uh, Justice Sears, who was uh, reputed to be one of our more liberal justices, announced her retirement and uh, our Republican governor was going to appoint a replacement. So the defendants uh, settled that case resolved that case, it went away. Uh, and then the next one up was Adam's case, and which they, they saw that as a great test case because as they described it, misdescribed it, but it was, uh, she was unhappy with her uh, facelift. And of course it was much more substantial and serious and her injuries were, were really horrific. But it, um, and so I had been hired to handle the first, the appeal in the first case, uh, by Watkins Laurie. And um, so Adam called me and I came into the trial court post-trial uh, in Nesselhut and argued the constitutional challenge in the uh, trial court in front of Diane Besson. Uh, and trial judge Diane Besson ruled our way on the constitutional challenge, uh, making the other side the appellants. And by the time it went up, uh, David Namias had, had replaced um, just Sears. And so the, the, I think, you know, they're, the thinking on the defense side was we have a more conservative bench. We have a less compelling case uh, without the paralysis and with the ability to, you know, call it a botched facelift. Um, and so they, this was their, this was their test case. Uh, we, we went at the appeal as we went out in the trial court on a number of fronts. Um, violation of the right to jury trial, separation of powers, in that we believe constitutionally only trial judges could reduce verdicts, and for the General Assembly to do a one-size-fits-all across the board reduction of certain verdicts violated the separation of powers. We had a due process, equal protection claim, etc. Um, we went in and argued the case. It was I think the perception going in was that we were we were behind four three, and but the way the argument went, um, you know, I, I I walked out after the argument and was asked by a reporter, "How's it going to turn out?" And I said, "We're going to win seven zero. And then I went home and and panicked 
Uh, <laughs> wished you hadn't said that. I really wish I hadn't said that. But you know, and, uh, and and I spent, of course, the next few months until the opinion came out. You know, agonizing over it. And the weekend, you know, they in Georgia Supreme Court announces on Friday afternoon its opinions. And um, uh, there, there's a story I'll tell you sometime about why my weekend was horrible waiting for that opinion. But um, but in any event, we 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 won seven zero, and they, and they. Uh, utilized basically the, the right to trial by jury um, they, and didn't reach the other issues. In the, and, Georgia, in the Georgia Constitution. This is right. The Georgia Constitution has um, a slightly differently phrased jury trial right than the federal Constitution. Uh, and and we, we picked up on that, focused on that. And, and essentially the holding was that issues which had been for the jury at the time of the adoption of the first Georgia Constitution could not be taken from the jury by legislation, but would require a constitutional amendment to take such issues from the jury. Um, and, and the amount of damages for non-economic damages was um, an issue that was for the jury. Uh, at common law before the adoption of our first constitution. And this was, this actually is a, one of these little learning experiences. One of the things we heard from the other side was, well, there were not even any medical malpractice cases um, at the time of the adoption of the first Georgia constitution. It didn't exist. So it couldn't be that non-economic damages and medical malpractice. And, and this is one of those sort of gotcha moments where, you know, I said, you know, there's a problem if one just plugs in the word malpractice into Lexis or Westlaw, and you, know, you don't see any cases earlier than the adoption of the first Georgia Constitution. The problem is uh, the spelling changed over time. And it was two words, malapraxis. Oh, uh, did not know that. And, um, and it was called the tort of unskillful surgery. Um, oh. And so there were cases uh, and they were out there. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a bad moment when, when you know, you say, well, this didn't exist at common law. And I'm like, well, let me read to you from Blackstone's commentaries, um, you know, about malapraxis and the tort of unskillful surgery. So that, you know, that's, um, that's all part of those, you know, many, many moot courts that we did to get ready yeah. for that argument. And in, in Nesselhut, in that opinion, interestingly, the, what, who they, who the defense thought might've been their new uh, champion on the Supreme Court, Justice Namias actually wrote a very lengthy, um, concurring, special concurring opinion might have been longer than the actual opinion of the court. Yeah, and, and one, one of the issues in the court was, you know, if you're going to declare a statute unconstitutional, is that retroactive to cases that were decided before the decision? And that was really the issue he focused in on. And yeah, I think a very scholarly uh, analysis of, of that issue in his concurrence. Um, so, you know, that was, that was a, a great case and a great moment uh, because of the sort of societal impact. And I think it stopped the plan to adopt caps on a number of torts uh, and, 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 you know, sort of put a constitutional uh, stamp on, on that effort. So. And, and so if there is ever another effort to try to limit uh, non-economic damages in a personal injury case now because of that opinion in Nusselhut, it would have to come from a constitutional amendment. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, you know, and, and so essentially, and it, it's a little broader than that, too. It's essentially any issue that was for the jury can't be taken from the jury by legislation. 
and and so that's that that's sort of the um, uh, you know, but it's a common law doctrine and, and, and based on the language of, of our Constitution. All right. Um, let me talk to you. And, uh, let's have your listeners hear about another uh, great case that you argued on appeal, Martin versus Six Flags over Georgia. Uh, and that was um, that was both, a, I guess, a premises liability case and it also involved issues of apportionment. And you talked that you've argued, I think you said five times on apportionment. Um, this year. This year. <laughs> this year. Well, apportionment was also part of that 2005 tort uh, limitations package from the Georgia legislature. Caps on damages was part of the 2005, um, it's notoriously known as SB3. Um, you, you got that overturned. Um, Apportionment still with us, but it's certainly been uh, litigated and discussed in appellate opinions. But let's talk a little bit about Martin versus Six Flags. In that case, Martin is uh, in the Supreme Court the appellant, meaning he lost in the court below. Correct? Yeah, but, and and I'm the one who argued and lost it in the court below. So yeah, uh, <laughs> although I have to I have to say it was it was not. Um, it was a very partial loss in the Court of Appeals because basically the idea, the, the appeal challenged liability at all because the premises liability case and the injuries and attack occurred about 200 yards away from the premises. And so the, the defense had argued that there simply can be no premises liability because it's off premises. And so they were uh, asking for a JNOV, that is verdict as a matter of law. And so, and, and so, uh, we won that issue in the Court of Appeals. And they said, no, no, there's a claim. You proved your claim. Uh, but there, in that case, there were a, a number of assailants who, who beat uh, um, Mr. Martin fairly severely. And, um, and some of them were listed on the verdict form for apportionment, and some of them were not. And so it came into and, should and Mike, be can you explain just what apportionment is sure. for, for our listeners for a minute? Because I know we all know wh what it is because yeah. we've all been practicing law for, for yeah. 30 yeah. years. But but some folks may not realize that. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to make sure no, so, they fully so, yeah, understand that. The doctrine of apportionment, uh, which, as Robin said, was part of the uh, tort uh, reform package of 2005, is, is the idea that if multiple people are negligent, uh, in the simplest context, multiple people are negligent and, and cause my injury. I can sue any one of them that I want to. Uh, and that's, that's always been true. Uh, what used to be the law is I can sue whoever I want to. I can recover all my damages from that person and they can then go sue the other negligent people and get reimbursed. And the idea was, look, um, if somebody has to take the risk that some of the negligent people don't have any money, don't have any insurance, et cetera, it should be the other negligent person rather than the innocent person who was harmed. This was changed in 2005 and, and the idea became that the defendant or plaintiff, but you know, the, the, the parties could insist that the jury, when I sue defendant, you know, six flags in that case, uh, that the, the, Six Flags could say, well, we want you to list all these other people who we think were also negligent or committed intentional torts, put their name on the verdict form and have the jury put a percentage next to each name. And 
then um, the damages are split according to those percentages, which have to add up to 100%. And each person, well, the, the named defendant that I sued only has to pay the percentage written next to their name. So if the other, if the five guys who beat Mr. Martin up uh, got 95% a portion to them, Six Flags only has to pay 5%. And in that way, the risk of being unable to find, unable to serve, or that the other people simply have no money or no insurance is, is put entirely on the injured plaintiff rather than on the other negligent parties. Um, and so it, it becomes, uh, you know, a, an issue of who should be on that form, what level and quantum of evidence is necessary, and procedurally, what do you have to do to get them on the form? And, and so those are the issues that we, that we talk and fight about a lot. And one of the issues in that case, for example, if five people are beating him up and another person who's friends with those five is standing there uh, watching or clapping or cheering or it depends on who you believe, should that person's name go on there? Didn't touch the victim, didn't hit him, kick him, anything else, uh, but was standing there um, applauding, cheering, whatever, does that name go on the verdict form? And so that was the, the issues that we, we dealt with in, in that case. But the Court of Appeals said, number one, uh, you're right, you can sue for off-premises uh, liability, but because you left some names of people who didn't actually touch him, but were there and arguably, quote, participating, uh, off the verdict form, you have to redo the whole trial, go back and do it over. But you are right that you can win even though it was off-premises. And so we would have that going for us if we went back. But we didn't want to go back. We had a good verdict. We didn't think there was any reason to go back and redo it. Uh, and so we petitioned the Supreme Court for cert, which was granted. And the Supreme Court um, affirmed the liability issue with slightly different reasoning for the off-premises assault. And then on the apportionment, it said, uh, you know, we agree that one of these names should have been included. But the remedy for that is not to do the trial over because nothing about that affects the amount of damages found by the jury. And nothing about that uh, affects the fact that Six Flags was found liable uh, and responsible by the jury. And there's nothing wrong with those parts of the verdict. So they sent it back merely to um, add in that one name and, and, and redo the percentages with that, with that name added. Uh, and so that, of course, was, was a victory for us because we got to hold on to the liability against Six Flags without having to redo the trial. We got to hold on to our damages number, and, and, that, and that was that. And, and the trial didn't even need to be redone because, you know, the, party, the parties you, you know, knew how that was going to come out. And, and so uh, we, we didn't have to redo the trial at all. That was uh, a $35 million verdict at the trial. Um, and in that trial... Judge Tanksley, who's the trial court judge, great judge, yep. great, great friend of mine, um, allowed four defendant, four of the gang members who beat up Mr. Martin on the verdict form, and the jury apportioned, I believe, 2% to each, each defendant. Right. Um, and, then, uh, and then you've told us what happened with that, that you had to do just a trial on apportionment, not on the verdict again. Then in a in another case, I'm going to talk that you have handled a, another very large verdict, the Veasley um, Med, Med, Medatronics International v. Veasley case. Monotronics. Monotronics International v. Veasley case. Um, 
that was also an intentional assault, uh, a sexual assault on Mrs. Beasley, and uh, a, a large verdict, uh, nine, I think it was $9 million verdict. Right. And the jury apportioned um, 4% fault to Mrs. Beasley, 92%, I believe, or tell me if I'm getting this wrong, though. I think 4% to Mrs. Beasley for contributory negligence. Um, and the, the rest to monotronics and none to the, uh, the criminal defendant. Is that right? That is correct. So um, well, while we're talking about apportionment, I can remember when back going back to 2005 when when it was became our law, uh, a lot of the soothsayers said, "Oh, these kind of sexual assault cases or um, intentional tort cases are gone because the jury's going to apportion 100 percent to that criminal defendant." And yet, it seems like we're finding no, the jury is not apportioning much to the criminal defendant. They're 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 making the the landowner or the employer. Or, Whoever really is the negligent actor uh, bear bear most of the fault. What what do you think about that? Well, uh, two issues. One is sort of a, uh, the the Veasley had a very particular issue uh, in it, and I'll get to that in a moment. But but I mean, the way I explain this to people, um, let's say that uh, I'm a celebrity and I hire a security company to protect me because I have a stalker. Okay. And everybody knows there's this crazy person out there stalking me. And I go and I hire bodyguards and a security service, protect me from this stalker. And on a particular night, you know, the security guards all go off and get drunk and I get attacked by the stalker that they were hired to protect me from. from. Whose fault is that? <laughs> you know, we all knew the stalker was there. We all knew there's a criminal trying to do something. They were hired to prevent that very thing. You know, it's, it's really no different than, you know, uh, I hire you to prevent, you know, a flood in my house or to prevent whatever. You know, the thing, something you're hired to prevent, it's your fault because that was your job. And a landowner has the, the, the non-delegable duty to, to uh, have safe premises for the people on their premises. And so, you know, I think the jury can say, look, in certain circumstances where the landowner knows, you know, there've been multiple robberies here and you don't put in security guards or security lights. It's really the landowner's fault because they knew it was going to happen. You know, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, failure to put up a, a fence around a safari camp in Africa. We know there are lions out there. Uh, you know, and so, um, I think it's perfectly natural for the jury to say in those circumstances, when you know or should have known, uh, and you know they always say they didn't know, but there's usually a lot of evidence they did, that it's reasonable for the jury to say, no, that was your job, and we know they're criminals. Uh, and sometimes it's your job to protect someone from the criminals, and, and that's the real reason this happened, because the criminals are always out there. Um, in the Veasley case, though, it was a little bit different. Um, in the Veasley case, the jury was not allowed to apportion to the uh, person who pled guilty of the sexual assault uh, because the um, procedural prerequisites uh, for putting the name on the form were not complied with. And, and that was really, there were two big issues in that appeal. Uh, 
And the first was the apportionment issue and, and the idea that um, you have to give notice of your intent to apportion 120 days before the trial commences. And they gave a notice after the close of discovery before a trial had ever been scheduled. Subsequently, the trial was scheduled to begin less than 120 days after the notice had been given. But there was no trial date when they sent in the notice. And they asked the trial judge, hey, we want you to shorten that 120 days, um, you know, because I think they were at like 118 or 119. And, you know, can you shorten the 118 days and deem our notice sufficient and put this person on the, and trial judge said no. And that was the first big issue on appeal was the trial judge right to say no to that. Uh, and what the Court of Appeals said on that is, look, what you needed to do is ask for a continuance. The trial judge can't change the statutory deadline. That's a statute. The trial judge can give you a two-day continuance, and you didn't ask for that. Uh, so, you know, not, not the trial judge's fault. Um, the second thing was um, there was a contract with the security company there where that had a limitation of damages and in no event uh you know shall shall we be liable uh for more than 250 dollars so if we're negligent you agree that your damages are limited to 250 and the, frankly i thought in that case that was the much harder issue um and that issue led me to violate one of the fundamental tenets of of appellate practice which is pick your one or two best arguments and spend your time pounding those home and i looked at this and I looked at our panel, and our three-judge panel had one judge that I knew absolutely I would not get their vote. And under the rules then in effect, that meant we went in bank automatically. And you could figure out then it would roll to, to, to nine, and you could figure out who they were. And, um, and, and so actually to, to seven, sorry, at that time. And, um, and so we looked at who they were, and I said, I've got this, this I think is my best argument. I don't think this judge will buy it. Here's my second best argument. I don't think this judge will buy it. So we ended up making five completely separate arguments for why that uh, contractual provision was, was, not, um, was not enforceable. We won the case six to one, and all five of our proffered reasons were adopted by like one judge, and then one of them had two judges. So... Yeah, we, I mean, it, it, we, we, that's a sort of look at who your judges are, think who you're arguing to. I decided at the beginning of that appeal that we were arguing to seven people and that this was not going to be won by us in front of three. And so we had to, to brief it differently. And may explain why there were uh, four special occurrences concurrences because yeah, exactly they agreed right. with the outcome, but we, had, we liked this argument better. That's exactly, um, it's exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, so that's you know, one where I actually are, feel like a great job of structuring and planning our arguments um, and using our knowledge of the court rules and the fact that it was going to go to multiple judges uh, and, and then being flexible on, you know, the, the normal judicial or, or uh, appellate practice rule that you only do one or two arguments. Yeah, it, I reread it uh, before today. Uh, it's a great opinion, but I noticed on the, um, the limitation of liability clause, the, the main opinion held it wasn't conspicuous enough, I, I guess, in the, in, the, in the body of the contract. But one special concurrence said, well, I don't think it even applies to personal injury. It says property damage. So 
I thought you were probably making all these different arguments and some judges latched onto that, other judges latched onto the other one, and it came out the right way, which and with one dissent, which given that panel, I think we as plaintiff's attorneys all knew who that was gonna be. Um, well, so, as you know, T.S. Eliot said, the greatest of treasons is to do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And, and appellate decisions, it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> well, it does, Lester, only because we have more cases coming. And, and so, you know, it's you, you need the reasoning to be sound and be useful in subsequent opinions. Uh, you know, I mean, I've used a lot of the, 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 the Dillard opinion in, in deeply, and I cite that, you know, for a lot of in a lot of cases. But um, that, that was just a very complicated case. And those damages limitations are, are tough. Well, Robin, are you going to hit him with with your favorite uh, our, our ending question here? Mike, I asked you to think a little bit about it. Uh, what does justice mean to you, or how would you define justice? Well, you, you really picked the, the wrong person to ask this. Um, uh, and Lester's one of the, the few people who knows this. I actually published a paper on the concept of justice in uh, eight or 19th century English and Scottish philosophy. Um, and Lester's one of only about 500. We get these little reports, author reports. Lester's one of only about 500 people who's ever read that paper. That's true. Um, I, I, I'm not, I've known you for a long time. I'm not familiar with that paper, Mike. Well, you, 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 can, you can buy it online. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it. Um, but basically, even though I, I wrote the paper about, you know, the sort of the, the Hobbesian uh, uh, time of, of justice philosophy. I'm more Aristotelian in my approach. And, you know, Aristotle referred to uh, justice as the virtue, which was the sum of all others. And, and I do believe that. Um, now, and it's really important, I think, today in the, in the days of, of Black Lives Matters and dealing with systemic racism to realize that the traditional Greek concept of justice had sort of two parts. Um, you know, there's uh, distributive justice, and that means systemic societal fairness, rights, benefits distributed fairly, that is just. Um, and then there's, there's what's known as corrective justice, and that's what we do in the courts. And corrective justice is where the rights and, and benefits are imbalanced because of the conduct of a person whether it's a criminal act, a tortious act, a breach of a contract, something has been done that was unfair, unjust, and needs to be corrected. Uh, and, and so that's the concept of corrective justice, and, and that is what we do. But uh, at the end of the day, really, in my mind, most concepts of justice are incredibly personal and mostly subjective. What do you think is fair? What do you think is fair? Now, we see this a lot in litigation, and here's an example that, that, that you get a lot in appellate practice because it's a very rule-bound practice. Um, let's take a party who's technically violated the rules. He filed his brief a week late, okay? Uh, and he will argue and truly believe that justice requires ignoring the technicality and focusing on the merits. That is justice. Ignore the violation of the of the of the rules and focus on the justice of the merits of the underlying case. While the party on the other side might truly believe, and I've made this argument, that justice means everybody plays by the same rules. Justice means a level playing field, uh, and if you have to enforce the rules even handedly, enforce them against everyone or not at all. 
and in some people's minds, that is just. And of course, we all are subject to the, the, the simple fact that it all depends on where we're sitting. Um, what I try and do is, you know, I, I started off with, I want to make my parents proud. Um, I want my parents and my grandparents, uh, you know, if they were told what I did to say, well, I raised him right. And, and that's sort of my concept of it. Uh, and, um, and then later I wanted my kids to be proud, to be able to look at what I did in a case, look at what I did in society, look at what I did with respect to these protests and for my children to be proud of what I did. Uh, and, 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 you know, and hold me up as an example. And that is justice. But in the very end, I think that justice is like obscenity or pass interference. I know it when I see it. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it is a very personal concept, uh, but it has to be driven by personal conceptions of fairness. Uh, because that that's if if what you're doing if you feel like you know you're winning but it's not fair uh, I mean I have I have had one appeal many years ago where I thought one of the 11th Circuit judges was so unfair to my opponent that I walked out knowing I was going to win and feeling like I wanted to throw up and after that case was over I called that ju that judge and and talked to them about how, how, what I thought of the treatment of my opponent. I did wait till after the case was over. I will admit <laughs> that. But, um, it's, if it doesn't feel fair, if it doesn't feel right, if it gives you a queasy feeling in the pit of your stomach, um, that's probably not justice. All right. All right. Thank you, Mike. We appreciate it very much. Thanks great for being with us today. It was great to have you on the show and hope you'll come back and visit with us again. Well, I enjoyed it. Glad to do it anytime. Lester and I want to bring our listeners uh, something that struck us in the law in the the news this week that is law related, and of course we uh, have to acknowledge what's going on in our criminal justice system with the Black Lives Matter protesters over. Um, the, the death of George Floyd, what I would call the murder of George Floyd, although uh, no one has been convicted yet, but, um, and, and the shooting, let's not forget the shooting of Am Ahmaud Arbery in Glenn County, which we've talked about in a previous ep episode of this podcast. Um, but the shooting and, and killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and if you'll recall, that was done by two men and, and, potentially a third conspirator, two men who were not policemen, not part of the Glynn County Sheriff's Department, uh, but they claimed they were making a citizen's arrest of Mr. Arbery. And um, I, I believe that law needs to be changed and needs to uh, be repealed. I was happy to see that on Monday, the day of the preliminary hearing in that case in Glynn, in Glynn County, that uh, a bipartisan group of rep state representatives have uh, filed a bill that will eliminate Georgia's citizens arrest law. And um, one of the representatives, Carl Hilliard um, from Garden City said that 
the, their bill's focus was to prevent civilians, civilians from taking the law into their own hands, and that our citizen's arrest law was created in 1863, and this law is clearly outdated at it, as it was formed in the fashion of the Wild West. When individuals lose their lives at the hands of civilians that become judge and jury, we must use the power of the pen to move Georgia forward. So I'm urging our, our Georgia legislature when it reconvenes to end and, and repeal the Georgia citizens' arrest law. Okay. All right, I'm going to go into the Wayback Machine for a minute because several years ago, you may have heard of a lawyer in Washington, D.C., uh, who took his pants to the dry cleaners and they lost his pants. And this resulted in a $67 million suit uh, against the dry cleaner for losing his pants. We hear about these things all the time uh, in, in the news media. They tend to get people outraged. They tend to undermine uh, confidence in the judicial system when, in fact, uh, as Robin and I know and others who are familiar with the judicial system, you can ask for whatever you want to, uh, but if you pursue it and you pursue it by improper means, there's usually not a very good end to it. This lawyer did not get a very good end because the D.C. Court of Appeals, uh, which is the equivalent of our Supreme Court, has suspended him for 90 days. Uh, based on the sort of outrageous and unsupported arguments that he made. He initially demanded $15,000 for emotional distress for losing his pants, then $15,000 in punitive damage. This later went up uh, to $67 million, which included $90,000 to rent a car needed to drive to another dry cleaner, and $3 million for, uh, for emotional distress. Uh, and he requested ongoing services from the dry cleaner for uh, 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 for a, from a dry cleaner after that. So uh, I think there are a couple of lessons in this. One, when you read about uh, somebody asking for a huge amount of money, let the process let the process work out. See what the evidence is because that doesn't happen in a lot of cases where it's not merited. The second thing is that in this time when we're talking about misconduct in a lot of professions, and particularly the law enforcement community is under the microscope with regard to members of that profession, a small minority uh, that are engaging in misconduct, it's nice to know that in the legal profession that those that engage in misconduct like this lawyer did actually do have to step up and pay the piper at the end of the day. Absolutely, Lester. Great, great example of our civil justice system doing the right thing um, and working it out. That's all I have, Lester. Anything else you want to Nothing for me, but I hope that folks will uh, tune in next time, and we hope to see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, seeyouincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to seeyouincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. 
On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.